नमस्ते वेलकम टू सच कॉन्वर्सेशंस मैटर कॉन्वर्सेशंस दैट रिप्रेजेंट द फ्यूचर वी शुड हैव आई एम योर होस्ट सौरभ नंदा टुडेस गेस्ट इज मिस्टर रिचर्ड फार्कस फ्रॉम हेलसिंकी फिनलैंड रिचर्ड इज द क्रिएटर ऑफ दिस अमेजिंग क्रॉस कल्चरल इंटेलिजेंस टूल कॉल्ड द कल्चर कनेक्टर I was introduced to the Culture Connector tool by Ms Elizabeth Masamune who is the managing director of Awaji Youth Federation a fellowship that I was part of in 2019 and the moment I used that tool I was fascinated by it Elizabeth uh, was also a guest on such conversations matter in the season in the first season Elizabeth connected me and Richard earlier this year to talk about various things related to culture and uh, actually Richard wanted to invite me over to his podcast and now i'm part of this amazing tribe that he has created of cross cultural experts intercultural uh, experts from across the world these people have amazing wisdom and knowledge uh, to give and share with the world today richard before creating the culture connector has a background in education in uh, education technology digital communications training and uh, just helping a lot of people with a, a lot of cultural conundrums these are going to make some amazing questions so let me invite richard over to the show hi richard how are you i am good thank you very much for having me on the show it's um it's great to be on the other side of the wall i've been a fan and now i'm a guest and i'm delighted to be here well the feeling is so mutual richard because i am such a fan of the culture connector and thank you so much for inviting me over to your podcast i think it's it's uh, i i re- never really imagined this that uh, you know when i started the podcast i will have other podcasters on the on the show and uh, i've seen that that's quite a, a quite a normal thing to do and i think <laughs> you're the first guest over another podcaster thank you so much for being here and taking up the time uh, well the the, the pleasure is all mine and uh, it's uh, your way ahead of me i it, it's very generous of you to call me a podcaster yeah there's something in the works that's coming through i hope by the time that uh, your audience hears this uh, it's already out there but uh, i've been impressed by you and and others like you who are doing something i think quite important and original on the media scene and uh, yeah i'd like a slice of that it looks great and uh, it's uh, it's it's really fun fun thing to be involved in well all i can say is welcome to the club richard because you're doing the same <laughs> okay so richard uh, in in my uh, previous season season 1 of such conversations matter i asked all the guests um, how were they managing the pandemic and uh, you know we're in season 2 the pandemic is still going on uh, different uh, parts of the world going through it in different ways uh, now my first question to all my guests is how was your 2020 How was 2020? Well, it was it was heartbreaking, wasn't it? It was it was pretty traumatic at at, at times. Um yeah, to 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 people, I think that that includes all of us who care what goes on in the world. We could see a lot of suffering going on. And um one thing that um now that we're we've moved into 2021 looking back at 2020 i i feel quite strongly is that we've done we 
as our, in our societies have done a lot of work to, to try to find a kind of just way to live, live well in the modern world. And it's a work in progress and it's far from perfect. But um, when something like this pandemic comes along, it, it disrupts everything and not necessarily in a good way. And there have been some winners and losers in this. The hammer has fallen in, a, in an unfair way, as you would probably expect. There's been some randomness there and uh, other things that, um, that really are a cause for concern. So that wasn't, that wasn't good. Um, for me personally, um, that wasn't my experience. I, I actually had a good 2020 and you know if i could rewind rewind the tape and play 2020 over again with no pandemic i would do that in a in a, in a heartbeat absolutely but um there was some good stuff happening too um and um yeah for me it's particularly good year um it was just just the the kind of context for that just makes it feel more more awful so yeah, I mean, 2020 uh, year, I kind of fell in love again. Um, I got re-educated. Um, this was a fun process. Uh, I There were some kind of breakthrough moments personally and professionally. Um, and, yeah, one of the weird things is I, I discovered that you could change your DNA, and I went ahead and did that. So that all sounds a bit peculiar. That we may need to unpack some of that. But um, the context for this was a terrible, terrible situation in the world. But actually, I'm sitting here, uh, way up on top of the world um, in Finland. Uh, so I'm not originally from here, but I've been here a long time. And um, the uh, the advance of the epidemic has been pretty slow here. Uh, we've been extremely lucky i've been extremely lucky in that in, in in finland we've had very different experience compared to many parts of the world so it's been possible to kind of have a, a good good life and actually um uh yeah like i said winners and losers that in 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 times of great change that it's it's not all bad if you're a progressive minded person then when things are, when there's kind of disruption, there are opportunities to maybe fix some things at the personal level, institutional level, societal level that um, that have got a bit fossilized. And um, so, you know, if you if you're looking for a positive spin on a really bleak year, I think you can find some. But um, you know, I'm I. I prefer to look forward than to look back, but this this was an okay year, and um, yeah, I hope that uh, other people are kind of um, repairing their lives in a, in a kind of new, invigorated, and, and strengthened way. But um, I know that uh, I know that there are going to be some long term effects that we'll have to really work on to to put things right. Uh, that came from 2020. A remarkable year, you know. If, if you're interested in the development of societies and cultures. It's been absolutely fascinating, and the story's really just starting. So um, we live in un unusual times, that's for sure. Absolutely. And I think you've summed it up so well. Uh, although there was that peculiar thing that I really want to uh, have a follow-up question on, did you by any chance use CRISPR 
or one of those gene editing kits which are available now for your DNA change. Yeah, that's, that's one way to do it. No, um, what I um, what I was referring to by, about changing your DNA is then, uh, I don't know where it came from. I guess it's because everyone was talking about the immune system last year, immunity, how that works. So I, I dipped into it in, in my characteristic way. I'm a curious person. Um, so I'm not a gastroenterologist, but I learned... I learned fair, more than I ever thought I would knew about gastroenterology last year. And um, one of the things that I guess we all have known for a long time is that um, humans are a kind of superorganism. So we are approximately half human. If you, if you look at the body mass of a human being, we think of as human, about half of it is human. So what's going on in the other half? The other half is a whole morass of, of microbes, fungi, bacteria, viruses, and so forth. And uh, that's half of you. Of course, the, the, the part that we, that we um, pay attention to is the human half, but there, there's a lot else going on. And um, one of the things that really struck me last year is uh, discovering that there's, there's two kilos of microbes just in your gut yeah and there's there's a lot of neural activity in your gut too apparently there's as much neural activity as much brain you could say in your gut as is as in the head of a cat and i don't know if you've ever been a cat owner they're pretty smart animals and you have you know cat level intelligence in your gut now this kind of thing I'm sorry if we're off the topic here, but um, oh, no, it, it, fasc- I think it fascinated me. <laughs> me too. Yeah. <laughs> fascinated me last year. So, okay, so um, I started to look into this and found that, okay, they, those two, two kilos of microbes are a kind of, um, there's a kind of war going on between ones that are maybe that you would back, you, you know, the good guys and the bad guys. Um, they are pushing you in different directions. They're, they're actually doing this by secreting hormones that give you certain intentions and drives. And I've never ah. paused to think about this, but um, you can influence who's winning that war in your gut, the good guys or the bad guys. Now, the bad guys, okay, that's a value judgment, but so the bad guys are probably the ones that are causing you to feel tired, sometimes a bit anxious and depressed. These are some of the hormonal effects of what what comes out of your gut, but also making you eat unhealthily, you know, telling you that you want that next pizza, that 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 burger, that you know, the fast food driving you is quite largely coming from these these gut microbes, and uh, this is what I mean about you you can change that, and it, it's not easy to do. It's not there's some work involved. But you can do it. And I had a little experiment with myself last year. And it feels to me, I haven't done the, you know, I haven't had a biopsy or whatever it takes to, to look into your gut microbe. But I feel completely like a new person. Those old cravings that I used to have, I don't have any longer. And it's it's the most bizarre and kind of wonderful feeling to, to feel kind of um, a sense of um, flow and harmony with your body, that you're not fighting a drive which you know is bad for you, but actually that you're in some kind of, um, uh, you know, 
um, consensus with your body. It's the, it's the most remarkable thing. And I didn't have that at the start of 2020, and I did at the end. So, you know, it, with that alone, that, that's a good transformative year. But, um, but yeah, that's what I meant by changing your DNA. It's not actually my human DNA. I think I'm stuck with that. Um, but it's the other... <laughs> the other organisms that inhabit me. Uh, there's a few less of the bad guys and a few more of the good guys uh, as a result of 2020. <laughs> this was fascinating. I mean, I always wanted to have, uh, you know, a, a geneticist on the podcast, maybe in the future seasons I will have. But I think you, you've sown the seeds for that. I've, I've always been very impressed with the CRISPR technology, uh, gene editing and, and, you know, DNA mapping. And I think uh, you just uh, told the entire world about uh, that there are a lot of other things living inside you, which might cause a little more concern. And I hope people just don't go out there just to have more burgers right now <laughs> because they have to feed something else as well. <laughs> It has to be, yeah, um, yeah. I would love to hear that. Do it, uh, Sora. Get that. Uh, get that real expert on. That was a personal story. I don't really know what's going on inside me, but I'm enjoying the effects of this little experiment. I mentioned. I, I, yes. Yeah, go ahead. Richard, I think I think I do notice that because last time we spoke uh, on your podcast, you definitely seem a little different from last time. So, <laughs> yeah, we spoke in the depths of the Finnish winter, so I'm here in Helsinki. It was dark, as it yes. usually is in winter, and now, yes. a few days ago, we passed the um, the equinox, and uh, now we have mm. lots of light. It's it's wonderful. We're, mm. we're approaching the smiling season, a very short time of the year when people in Finland actually smile. Uh, it does happen. Wow. Uh, you, you may have to wait a long time, but yeah, um, that was the winter me, and, uh, and this is the spring me. <laughs> the spring, Richard, with less number of bad guy microbes and a whole lot more smile. Amazing. Richard, uh, before we keep on, you know, before we record the entire interview based only on this topic, let's let's just, I think uh, it's, it's time that you should tell us why you did not become a gastroenterologist and uh, please summarize your professional journey for us. <laughs> yeah, my professional journey, um, it's, um, I guess, well, one of the things that happened last year was uh, I turned 50, which is a big number. And it made kind of an impression on me, you know, I, I need, I got a very low threshold for kind of pondering things. And that, that was a good moment to sort of take stock. Um, I think that perhaps in 2020, I reached the end of the sampling period at the age of 50 in my mm -hmm. career. Now, what do I mean by the sampling period? I, I mean that... Um, at an early stage in your career, you're kind of shopping around. I hope you're shopping around for what really suits you. Um, this is your department, not not mine, but I think they call it, uh, what is it, match quality, isn't it? I think match quality. So, you know, many people, I think the numbers are above 50%. Many people feel that they're in the wrong job. And um, I've been pretty determined to shop around to find, you know, what, what, where's my match quality? Where, where does that lie? So I've had a few careers, if that's the right term, uh, in my time. I started out in human resources, you know, qualified in human resources, and did a few years in that. Um, uh, training, um, I worked for a training provider. Uh, 
uh, in the um, e-learning, in a kind of big e-learning project for a while. Um, I was in digital communications. Uh, I've worked in um, as an entrepreneur in, in the kind of content business. And um, currently, I guess the core of my work is now around software. But I, I've, I'm, I've reached a point where I don't know if it's a dangerous point or a good point to be in, but I think I've reached the comfort zone. Um, I've been kind of avoiding that uh, for these you know, last 30 years or so, but I, it's the most remarkable thing to find yourself in a position where suddenly things seem to click. Um, and uh, what I do these days is, is run a company called Argonauts, and uh, as you've mentioned, we have a thing called Culture Connector, which we may be coming to, um, which is um, a tool for uh, helping people deal with international environments, uh, cross-cultural situations at, at work. Um, and that's a pretty broad-scoped occupation. And I've been involved in this project for nearly 20 years, actually now 20 years. And um, it is kind of unfathomably wide in its in its scope because you know where does culture begin and end it kind of touches everything but now I have the business side to run uh, since the last five six years I've been running the, the company and um, I have the technology side to drive forward and in each of these areas I, I'm just so passionate and excited and that I think passion comes from the kind of spark you get working with interculturalists. So these are the people that do the work and, and use our tools. And it's just such a vibrant, amazing community. Um, uh, yeah, so I find myself in this role, responsible for a, a, a service called Culture Connector, having done a whole lot of other stuff. Um, where did the original idea come from? Well, I, like I said, I started out in human resources and actually had intercultural problems, but no intercultural solutions. I wasn't taught intercultural skills, the ideas from, from this area. As many people are these days, I, I'm glad to say that, you know, that the march of the profession has been such that many people have been exposed to that, doing all kinds of different courses uh, through uh, university and other kinds of studies. Um, but I didn't have, I, I, I had no equipment to deal with the, these intercultural problems which were popping up in my role uh, in, in HR. Um, but then I got a tip, this, I was working at the time in a business school in the human resource function, got a tip from one of the faculty there um, to, to make a short trip up to the library uh, and find the shelf on cross-culture. Cross um, which I didn't know existed. I've always walked past that if I was ever in a business school library before that. Um, and, and, and there I found a whole trove of ideas and concepts and approaches which could help solve the problems that I had. And they really did, it seemed to work. And so I kind of fell into this whole new area which was fairly well established then, but still small. Um, and I got hooked. I got absolutely hooked. I now have done this shopping around, like I, I said, I've worked in various fields, 
but it just keeps coming back to culture. I see it everywhere. I can't take off those cultural lenses that uh, that I slipped on in that first first ever role I had. So now finding myself actually responsible and a kind of um, uh, well, uh, one of the participants in in this field. Uh, I'm utterly in my element, and I'm not sure that the shopping around will stop here. I think I'm here for a pretty good spell now. Um, it's difficult to imagine a better fit, but um, maybe others who see me at work would, would have an, another opinion on that. But for, for me, uh, as, the, as the occupier of this role, I can't imagine a better place. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been a fun journey. And uh, I'm, I'm quite glad about the way that it's turned out. But it took 30 years. Well, isn't that the best kind of journey? I mean, you are now currently doing something which is, in a way, you know, the fruit of 20 years or 30 years of observation of people, observation of processes in organizations, and then just trying to put all of that together trying to connect the dots in, in such a way that it is now helpful for others. Other people can use it and not probably go through the same uh, dilemmas uh, which, which probably you went through. Um, Richard, so, you know, when you moved to Finland, you must have realized the difference in culture there. And, you know, with your understanding of a little bit of, uh, you know, cross-cultural relationships, um, before you moved to Finland, how how did you uh, cope up with the new culture? What what was going on in your head, and what was uh, what were the new things that you were trying out before you know you could say that yes, I am assimilated in this society now. I'm glad you said that because it gives me a chance to explain another weird comment that I made in the intro uh, about falling in love again. Uh, because in case my wife ever hears that, the falling in love that happened. Uh, last year was um, falling in love again with my adopted home country, Finland. It is just the most fabulous place. You know, I'm an immigrant here, and I'm I'm happy every day that uh, that the kind of um, the randomness of life has has meant that I've resulted in you know in, in being in this in this lucky position here in Helsinki. And um, uh, yeah, so. I, Odd, I was thinking recently, uh, for someone who works in cross-culture, uh, uh, I'm an odd person because um, I, I feel like I have never met a foreigner. Uh, never met a foreigner. I never had the experience of meeting a foreigner. Now, what do I mean by that? When I encounter people from other cultures, um, I don't know what it is, but they don't seem foreign to me. You know, I do experience culture shock in, in some sense, I guess. But for me, growing up in Britain, Brits were as weird to me as the French or the Germans or uh, the others uh, who came through our household. Um, and I don't have that sense of distance to other people because of their culture. So... Um, so I'm, I, the way I approach culture is more from a sense of curiosity and a desire to understand um, than the, the, the emotions which many people feel, fear, feel, fear is a Freudian slip perhaps, uh, you know, a kind of anxiety when you, 
when your life is upended and you shift to another country and you know you lose your networks and um, all of those assumptions that work in the place where you grew up don't work in your new environment. Those kind of things don't trouble me. I think they energize me. So I don't feel, I don't remember that sense of what what the heck is going on in this place. I just remember a kind of fascination. And um, being sort of politically active in my early years, coming to Finland was a, was a kind of um, paradoxical experience because um, many of the things that really uh, animated me in British society and looking globally were solved in Finland. They just weren't issues here. Okay. And that's a kind of... It, it, it saps something out of you, you know, when you've been getting your energy from the sort of the fight that, you know, the, the contradictions that, that we're in, that we're, that we're wrestling with, that the, the improvements we want to make, you come to a place and they're kind of, it's a done deal, you know, they, they've solved and they've moved on to other things. It's a remarkable thing. Now, now everything's a work in progress. There are many, many things which can be improved in Finland, but all of those things that were on my list of priorities to put right in the world were sort of right already. So, yeah, there was this falling in love um, uh, thing happening with me. Now, Finland's not for everyone. Uh, I, I remember being involved in a fairly high-profile recruitment of, uh, of someone who we brought to Finland with great, with high hopes um, that, uh, that, that, that there would be a good, what did, what did I say, match quality, there'd be a good fit. Um, and this person hated it. Just It just didn't work out for her. And I, I, I can see that, that, you know, we each to our own. Finland's not, not for everyone, but um, if, if you're kind of wired the way I'm wired, um, you've really landed on your feet if you've come to Finland. So, um, but, okay, uh, going back to the shocks, one of the things that really shocks you coming to Finland is that um, people don't speak much. And if they can avoid speaking at all, they won't speak at all. <laughs> And, you know, and I was here, uh, my first role was uh, in, in the training world. And if you are training to an audience of Finns, uh, maybe you've experienced this, you've spent some time, I know, in the Nordics. Uh, Finns are kind of extreme example, and, and together with our neighbours in Estonia, pretty difficult audiences to, to, you know, get some engagement from. And this was, this was hard. You know, you just don't know what they're thinking. Uh, they're probably thinking good <laughs> thoughts, but they may equally be thinking, "Who is this idiot that we're um, we're listening to today?" So, um, um, yeah. So this was hard, actually. The, the conversational side. Um, thinking back to twenty twenty, yeah. there's been an upside to this that um, the way that Finns are, the way that they relate to things, is I think one of the explanations why we haven't been hammered by the epidemic as other countries have. Just in the, the small day-to-day -day interactions, Finns keep their distance. There are many, many reasons, I think, why the, the epidemic has been milder here than in, in other places. But Finns keep their distance physically, but they don't speak much. You know, so they're not broadcasting. There isn't so much um, 
so much chance for viruses to um, uh, to transmit. And if they do speak, they they mumble like I do, um, and they uh, uh, and they don't speak loudly. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm just a gross generalisation here, but if, you'll notice it if you come. It, of course, there are loud there are loud fins too, and loud extrovert fins who love to talk, but. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty quiet place where people keep their distance, and uh, yeah. And so this this was another. It's a difficult one um, to integrate into if if what you expect is the kind of warm embrace of friendly crowds, that's not going to happen to you in Finland. I I I can so relate to it because I I spent around ten months in Denmark. I mean, although yes, Denmark and Finland are way different, um, but you know, the people do club them together as Nordic countries. And uh, th- there are similarities in, in their, uh, you know, uh, social behavior and social uh, fabric, I would say. And uh, and, and th- probably that is uh, why, you know, there are so many virtues uh, which exist in the Nordic world today, which are, uh, you know, examples for the rest of the world as well. Um, amazing. So coming back to Culture Connector, uh, Richard, um, you you hinted a little bit about what Culture Connected does. Uh, can you just elaborate a little bit more on it as to how does it work? Uh, how did you build it? What is the reliability of such a tool? What exactly does it do, uh, do and you know how people can use it? Maybe. Okay, there's a lot in that. I could talk all day, but we've got. You'll have to you'll have to stop me. I think because uh, this is my favorite topic. Um, the Culture Connector is, is trying to do different things for different people. So um, it's serving, of course, the users. So if you go to cultureconnector.com, you log in, it's free. Anyone can sign up. Uh, we have a free service. Um, you, uh, you, I hope, get some really useful practical insights to help you deal with other cultures and maybe also to reflect on your own culture and your relationship with that. So... Um, this is maybe kind of level one and a really core part of Culture Connector. Um, so it's a it's an ed tech tool um, for for people. It's on demand. It's not it's not a course. But you go there when you have a specific problem to solve. You do a little bit of configuration. What kind of what kind of uh, cultures are involved in this situation and uh, what what are the themes and topics that I need to be paying attention to in Culture Connector will spill out some uh, some advice and hopefully do that in a kind of visually engaging and uh, accessible way. So it does that for for uh, people whom we call learners. When I say learners, it's, it's mainly employees. We're pretty niche. We're, we're focusing on cultural differences in the workplace. So this is not so much about families in transition moving from one culture to another, but it's mainly about how, as an individual or a team, you can be more effective in your work. So, so that's, that's the starting point. Uh, a really key part of the community that we serve are the trainers the interculturalists that I mentioned earlier. So um, we're trying to uh, provide for them a tool to help them increase their reach, their effectiveness, help them engage people. And uh, I was talking about winners and losers from 2020. Obviously, um, 2020 was a breakthrough year for EdTech, educational technologies. for all the wrong reasons, you know, I, I'm an old timer in this in this game, and I we've been 
struggling for for years to try and get um, to try and get institutions to um, recognize the power of um, you know, technology in education, and then suddenly within months or even weeks in some in some institutions that go back hundreds of years and never never decide to do anything suddenly they're switching because their lives and their budgets depend on it uh, their well, lives almost literally depend on it switching to um to ed tech solutions so um we are there for interculturalists who see opportunities to take the skills and the work that they do to new audiences and new find new clients and so forth so this is a really important part we want them to succeed those people because uh, I'm, I'm a bit of an intercultural fanboy uh, I, I guess by this time I should call myself an interculturalist too but really I'm the, the kind of nerdy fanboy who, who wants these people to succeed because they are really the glue for a globalized world it's not all smooth sailing with globalization, as we've noticed through the centuries, and you know, particularly perhaps in the last few decades. And we do need expertise. We need experts to help iron out the wrinkles and, and, and help people deal with, with that, especially not only those, those people who cross um, borders and you know that the, the the culture crosses the, the people whom perhaps we, we deal with that, that get an ad, international education or move in international circles, but also those that stay put. How to deal with it when your company is taken over by a, a firm from another culture? How how to deal with it when you suddenly get suppliers that you're you're in direct contact with or even co-workers. So uh, we are serving people not only who see themselves as you know, global citizens, but see themselves very firmly as being of one culture, uh, trying, to, trying to reckon with the changes. So uh, this is um, the second um, stakeholder group. Uh, and then, of course, these interculturals very often are employed by organizations that do intercultural training. So as a player in the marketplace, we want to enable and empower those organizations to just achieve more for the intercultural training because no one's getting hugely rich from intercultural training you know it's hard to it's a hard sell when there are so many ways that an employee could use their time to come in with something that sounds so fuzzy and so okay warm-hearted but you know and now now there are plenty of executives out there who've, who've experienced the hard edge of culture you know where, where projects just hit the sand because of cultural differences even vast multi-billion joint ventures uh, you know no matter how many case studies there are it seems that people still think it's a warm fuzzy nice thing to do uh, you know as a kind of reward for for good employees to to have a bit of an easy training and it's not that at all this is pretty hard nosed stuff and it's it's really challenging a good intercultural training will will challenge you to to think differently and and, and you know reflect on your own assumptions and so forth so we want those organizations to succeed so that they're an important stakeholder for us too and then of course 
the, the money often flows from corporations and government agencies who are ultimately paying for this training for their employees. So we, we have some tools for, for them at, uh, at that level to kind of analyze the diversity that they have in, internally, to think about um, the talent, where, where their talent is externally and internally for dealing with a, a global marketplace. and. Um, yeah, so this is getting a little bit abstract, but at the highest level, we want there to be more intercultural training in the world. And we're trying to facilitate that, mainly with technology. Um, and uh, you know, at, at the highest level, it's because globalization is, is here to stay. Uh, it needs to be managed well so that we it, it kind of works out. Uh, it's... It's, it's, it makes me think sometimes of, um, you know, if you, if you take a plane to another culture, uh, while you're in the sky, you want those engines to be pushing you forward, because if they don't, you're going to drop out of the sky and that's not going to end well. But when you hit the ground, you don't want those engines to be pushing you forward anymore. You're going to go right off the end of the runway and that's not going to end well. You can say there's, there's a kind of res reverse thrust that you need at that point. Um, I'm wondering if now globalization has reached a point where we need to be a little bit careful about the speed and the kind of breaks off idea about globalization. We need some expertise. It's good to take a breather and think, is this working out? Let's say if you're if you're working for Monsanto, is this working out for poor Indian farmers? Is there a conversation happening between those two groups? Can they even speak the same language? Is there, is there an opportunity for a kind of common understanding? Because we're all in this together. So that at the highest level, we want to play a role in making this work out so that we don't go off the end of the runway. Uh, because it's a dangerous game. And you know, it, it takes people to, um, to go into this with their eyes open to, to, to get success. Absolutely, Richard. I mean, I think uh, you've you've pointed out so many things that I uh, would love to have, you know, conversations separately on, especially when you talked about Monsanto and, you know, there was suddenly a flag or like, okay, <laughs> we, we might get into a separate conversation altogether. Um, but you're so right in, in today's world, especially today's world, uh, where, where polarization is, uh, well, just becoming a trend in so many parts of the world uh, and, you know, uh, hyper-nationalism and all these uh, new concepts of, of uh, uh, leadership, you need to understand the other side, especially when within the communities which were supposed to be on the same side, there are multiple sides now. And, and I think uh, that inter intercultural intelligence is, is all the more needed here. Um, tell us a little bo a bit more about uh, Culture Connector, uh, Richard, as in, uh, because I remember when, when I took it in 2019 under, uh, you know, uh, Elizabeth's uh, program, which was amazing, fascinating, eye-opening for me. Um, the closest culture which, which came to me was, was Croatia. And yes, I, I knew about the country, uh, <laughs> but I never really thought that, uh, you know, Goran Ivanovic is, is one of my favorite tennis players. Why not? But then uh, apart from that, <laughs> I didn't know anything about Croatia at all. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so um, Coach Connector will um, place you on uh, 12 dimensions. So it doesn't, I hope, put, put you in a box like, uh, Saurabh, you're Indian, therefore... 
No, it, it looks at you on 12 dimensions and and then that that mapping onto other cultures is a kind of fun thing which the system can do. It finds the cultures with the closest um, pattern of work styles that, that, that map your own. Now, um, I'm sure that you can find uh, the the aspects in your personality and style and lifestyle which are thoroughly Indian and, and others which are, you know, unusual, that you're an exception for, for the society that, that you're in. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, Culture Connect um, will aim to... Well, it's, it's not really the purpose of Culture Connect to, to help you find the culture where you are... Kind of uh, where there's best best fits, but it, it's it's part of a way of thinking about what how you relate to other cultures that that might be useful. Um, the the idea that um, that everyone's on a scale is is important, um, but it's it's also a kind of reminder that um, stereotypes are are very rare. So although that you may have found of those cultures which you selected, Croatia was the closest, um, it's very unlikely that actually you map one-to-one onto Croatian culture or any culture. Actually, In fact, we did some research not, not so long ago that, uh, that found in our system, according to the way we um, delineate cultural differences, that you, you might find a cultural stereotype in, in approximately one in every 450 People. So wow. if you've got a room full of a thousand people, maybe two of those people are an exact match on our dimensions uh, to the culture from which they come. So stereotypes are actually rare, and we're, we're trying to emphasize that people are individual. But you know what is not um, in doubt is that at population level, culture is real. So you can be as individual as you like. And the, the, the glory of human society is that we are all very individual. But when those differences come together in populations and become institutionalized, um, then, then culture can really become a powerful force that even people who don't identify with the work patterns and styles that they are using in their work because that's the culture that they're in, that they're not their own. They don't come from within, but it's necessary to follow those in order to get stuff done in the institutions you're in. So cultures at that level is real. At the individual level, it very quickly breaks down, but it's still a useful concept. So um, I remember you were talking, um, I was very happy to hear and rather surprised to hear you talking about Culture Connector on your podcast last year, and you were talking about how the group uh, that you were in in Japan uh, all, all came out um, with um, with profiles that, uh, that I think were fairly similar to, them, to, to each other, um, that, you know, that you weren't you didn't have an Indian, a classically Indian profile, and the person from country X didn't have a classically country X profile. Now, I would be pretty confident that if we were marooned, shipwrecked on a desert island, and that um, mm. that, that you, you and your colleagues in that in that group were um, delegated to get us off the island, that you would be over, able to overcome the the cultural differences. Um, 
that that existed amongst the team because I guess that the, that to some extent, although there's a lot of diversity, that there's a self-selecting group of people who have a lot in common from day one. Although they may pray differently and dress differently and eat different foods, but there's a lot that unites people. Um, so um, so we're, we're talking Culture Connect not about your appreciation of landscape or what kind of music you enjoy, but really about work styles. So you might actually find that if you got if you ever got closer to Croatia, that things kind of worked out pretty well for you there, because this is about work style, not about you know um, the broader things in life. However, um, let's say that you're successful in um, in establishing contact. We're, we're still shipwrecked on this island. That, that you've been able to work well as a team uh, and, and overcome those differences. Now, uh, you make contact uh, through some kind of uh, radio receiver, which you have fashioned from whatever you found in the, in the wreck of our ship. Uh, and you make contact, and, and the person that you speak to says, uh, actually, we have been looking at the island, and we, we've been thinking we it would be a great place to build a, an airstrip and a, and a hotel complex. So... Um, could you help us in the planning of this hotel complex? And by the way, you may not have noticed them yet, but um, there's a native population that uh, live in the highlands of your island, and we'd like you to be the to, to be the facilitators to help this project succeed. Uh, we've got, let's say, legal services from the US. We've got the construction lined up from uh, from China, we've got the technology from India, uh, you know, and so on and so on. Now, at that stage, I would say that probably you're going to need an interculturalist to help you out there. Just being open-minded people is not going to be enough to deal with the kind of institutional um, energy drive that comes with big projects when they come together. So yes, in a, in a meeting room where you, you're, everyone's kind of open-minded and feeling flexible and uh, you know you know how to hand over a, um, a business card in the correct way and perhaps you've chosen the right clothes, that's all fine. But when it goes deeper than that into how you prioritize relationships, how you structure a project, how you deal with this indigenous population who have uh, interests that you need to reconcile with incoming interests. All of that stuff, that's, that's hard technical work and there are skills involved in that. So um, yeah, what Culture Connector is aiming to do is to keep the trainer very much in the picture. So there's a limit to what we can do with the tool. I hope it can open minds, uh, open eyes and open minds. It can get people thinking in the right way and point them in the right direction, save some time. But really, you need some expertise to make uh, an ambitious inter international intercultural project work. So, um, so yeah, in terms of uh, validity, uh, I think it's good to be humble about what we're doing here. Europe, is, is I, if I understand right, uh, and many things, including an engineer, but also clinical psychologists. You have a psychology training. Yes. So you know how the, the kind of predictive power of these kind of tools uh, 
that the best ones may predict work performance, predict the kind of variation in work performance up to what five percent would be a great would be a great result. Mm. You know, that's really hard, battle tested. Um, psychometric assessments such as kind of those based on the big five in psychology, those, those Jungian archetypes and uh, maybe IQ testing can predict um, abstract reasoning and so forth. So there's some, there are some areas of psychology where the predictive power of those tools is, is pretty well established, but it's still at a very low level. So I think in the cultural field, we are... We're at an early stage still, and I'd like to be humble about that. With, with Culture Connector, we're not aiming to measure competence. We're not aiming to do that. It, we're, not, we're not chasing this idea of a kind of fixed personality which we can measure. That's, again, not what we're trying to do. We're trying to alert people, uh, especially those that are involved in a training situation, about the development of their skills, where they need to invest their time. They're busy people who've got many other things to think about. Culture often comes as an afterthought, uh, sometimes too late, but um, uh, we, we're trying to help them target how they use their time, what they're thinking, what they're paying attention to, and not to say, we can measure you, and because we have this m magic in our system, we can tell you which problems you're going to hit. I don't think it would be honest to do that. But this is why we need the kind of human insight too, because the technology is great and it's getting better. And it's my job every day to make that technology improve. But still, we can't compete with the kind of insights which a human interculturalist can bring to bear. So when they step into a situation, they're looking at, they may be looking at you and your personal situation. They may be uh, looking at the kind of your emotional res resilience. They'll be looking at the team processes you have in those that you need to work with. Um, they'll be looking at the institutional um, processes that, that kind of create an organizational culture. They'll be looking at a wider culture. You know, there's so much there that we can't build into a model, and it would be bit dishonest I think to say that you know take coach connector will give you you know your probability of success in project X we're not there yet but we may I think we're moving in that direction but right. uh, there's there's a long way to go um, and the the question of what is intercultural competence I think even that is is unresolved um, there are some themes that are recurring uh, around um, Around certain topics, but um, but I, there isn't a kind of unified view in the field. Okay, we have a model for intercultural competence, and, and this is it. Um, and you know, like I said, I think the value of that is more in helping us to think about how we develop skills rather than a kind of fixed assessment of a person. Uh, but you've, you've mentioned some of those already in, 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 in how you introduced the topic. Uh, you, you mentioned this kind of us and them thinking. This is one that's often pointed out as, um, as an aspect of intercultural competence. So this, this is around empathy. Are you able to go into a situation and really have a sense of what it's like to be in that other person's shoes? Can, can you see yourself as they see you? 
perhaps. Um, there, are, there are others too that often crop up. Openness is obviously one, which is related to flexibility, your, your, your willingness to, um, to go into new situations at all. Um, dealing with ambiguity is another one. Anyone who's cross cultures will know that when you know when they first step into the room or whatever this new situation is, they don't know what's going on. You know, it, it takes time. Maybe it takes years, really, to get under the skin. But it, it certainly, um, it's certainly something that everyone needs to contend with when they cross cultures. How to operate in a situation where you just don't know what's going on. Um, so that's ambiguity. Um, knowledge is an important one. And knowledge is, is a kind of skill, isn't it? But also the acquisition of knowledge. Can you have you tuned in your perceptiveness so that you can observe people and, and try to understand from what you observe and, and amass a kind of knowledge about the culture? Uh, and what we're doing with Culture Connector is trying to shortcut that a little bit to, to help people quickly get down the knowledge level. But um, we also need to really get people developing their own ability to, to amass knowledge about cultures. Um, what else is there? Um, reserving judgment is, an, is another one. So when you go into another culture, you will be confronted by things with, with which you do not agree, which are quite shocking, uh, which you know are challenging for you, that, uh, that challenge your values. So being able to maybe pause before you judge and, and Try to understand why do I feel like this? How are these the people in this situation seeing it? Uh, are the, the values which I hold reflected in the culture too? Are they feeling a kind of challenge or a sense of injustice that, that, that I do, or is something else going on? So that reserving judgment. And there's more. There's more to intercultural competence. The list yeah. the list goes on. But um, it's a fascinating area. We don't measure it directly in Culture Connector, but it's something maybe we'll touch on a bit more in future. We'll see how things develop. Wow. So again, so many threads. Uh, I, I want to uh, you know chase uh, from from uh, what you just said. Um, let me just start by saying, you know, that, like when when we first used uh, Culture Connector, uh, you know, the AYF uh, second cohort uh, or second generation uh, in in Japan, we all found that you know we were quite close to each other as far as uh, our cultural, uh, I, I would say, traits are concerned. But we were quite, uh, most of us were quite far away from our uh, original or native cultures, and uh, we were nearer to uh, Croatia, Luxembourg, uh, these kind of things, and, and uh, these kind of places. And, and I think uh, we, uh, since, since you were so generous in offering us the full package, you know, we were able to uh, compare our cultures or compare our profiles uh, with around 100 plus countries. And we still found out that Croatia, Luxembourg, Ireland, the, these are the places that we were quite close to. Yeah, and, there are some, go, go ahead. Yeah, tell no, no, me please, please. <laughs> yeah, there, there are some cultures which, um, that, that crop up again and again. I think the pattern is that uh, there are some cultures which, which do, which effectively bring together different ways of thinking. Hong Kong is another one that, that often crops up because it's kind of right. between East and West. There are many aspects of Western practices in in Hong Kong and uh, in uh, and of course many from the East. Um, 
in in Luxembourg and Croatia, well, it's a it's a combination of that kind of well, let's talk about Croatia, it's the Slavic mm. mentality, mm. but also it's a Southern European Western yeah. Western culture. Uh, it is a it's a fascinating kind of um, junction in. Um, uh, in, in European society and part of the former Yugoslavia, which was itself a kind of collection of very different cultures. Luxembourg is very difficult to pin down. It's, it's kind of French, but it's German, but it's Luxembourgish too. You know? So that's one of those cultures where you find strands from very different styles. Um, and I think that's may, maybe one of the things that you were seeing in, in your group, that you were a, a group of people who, who are... Um, who are unusual for, for the cultures you come from. And you are perhaps, um, I'm talking here in, in terms of work styles and, 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 and uh, your approach to work. Again, not the way you pray or dress or eat or look, none of those things. But um, uh, yeah, you may have a lot more in common than, uh, than sometimes. No, you're absolutely right. In, in fact, that's, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, you know, so we, we did find out that we were all quite individualistic, we were quite entrepreneurial, uh, we were quite adventurous, uh, explorative, and, and you know, in, in your, uh, uh, that hypothetical uh, situation that you talked about, you know, we were all stranded on an island, probably we would have been the interculturalists uh, helping this big uh, corporation uh, trying to set up something and you know dealing with the indigenous peoples over there and and i think we we uh, the, our, our cohort was perfect for that and and i'm pretty sure you know uh, programs like ayf which are quite unique and rare um you know they will get more and more people who are like this who belong to this multicultural unique small spaces um where they you know find themselves and then unable to identify themselves in their native cultures probably Talking about that, um, Richard, the, the world is changing so fast, especially because of technology, social media, and, uh, you know, different ways of communicating between people. So at one on one hand, uh, now people are getting the platforms free of cost, almost, to amplify their own cultures to, to you know, uh, no limits, actually. But on the other hand, since everyone is online and these big social media platforms, they are kind of defining the cultures with the likes and the you know various uh, tools to increase the dopamine levels in your head and whatnot. So there is this, there, there, there are these two parallel things going on wherein you're amplifying your own culture at the same time uh, you are uh, developing and uh, actually uh, you know embracing another new culture altogether, which is the digital culture. And it'll be very interesting to see as to what is the, you know, uh, what are those areas, what are those points where they kind of come together? Um, how, how does Culture Connector deal with that and, you know, change, that change, change in culture perspectives? Yeah, well, it's, um, that, that digital culture is, um, is a kind of layer that we're all dealing with and we all uh, move into that space at, at some point. It's... Um, well, we're approaching it in, in a couple of ways. One of the ways is that we, we have some content about how to connect with people remotely, how to overcome the kind of um, barriers that you experience when you're in the same room that, that are um, even even more exacerbated when you can't 
have that connection, you can't go for the coffee and so forth. So, so we have some material about this, but it is a pretty new area. I, I would a little bit caution against thinking of digital culture as being outside of our normal culture. I think um, perhaps people in my generation would be more likely to look at it that way. But and there's this, this phrase in real life. Okay, there's the digital me and there's me in real life. But um, I would say for a lot of people, that digital experience is real life. And that um, and the digital culture is affecting the way that people are acting in real life so that there's these two are coming together i mean one of the hardest but also most wonderful things about culture connectors we have to keep the thing up to date uh, the content up to date because cultures are changing the whole time and and digital culture is absolutely a driver of cultural change if you think about the ease with which um you can create a persona online. You choose your image. You kind of curate uh, the the image which you you present to the world. Um, we we see more and more of that in so-called real life too. That people want to be seen and accepted for who they say they are. That uh, how they have decided they should be approached. And this is, you know, one interpretation is that this is coming from digital culture into our you know, offline lives too. So we need to be um, aware of the, the way that these two aspects of cultural development come together. Yeah, I, I actually, early on, when the internet was a new thing, I was one of those people that was writing so-called netiquette guides, how to be online. I had this idea that we would create some kind of resource called Eighth Continent, you know, another continent where you could go and be that person online and it would have its own rules. Um, and I don't see it that way anymore. I see that there's a huge interplay between the digital and the, um, the, the real life. So I hope that we just keep going with our goal to to make Culture Connector reflect cultures as they really are today and, and incorporate those ideas which are coming from uh, from digital. But um, it's not all good, is it, the, the internet? Um, you know, I'm a huge fan. Uh, I've worked in digital communications. It's, it's, it's kind of my lifeblood. I spend a huge amount of time online. It's a wonderful thing. But there, there's a flip side to it too, isn't there? It's kind of a dark side. And we can see some of those negative effects. So you were asking about what we're doing with Culture Connector. We're trying not to be to feed those um, aspects of online because it's an edtech solution. Not to feed those aspects of online, which um, which drive anxiety and depression and the other kind of negative effects of on online life so for example yes we can do social a little bit of social comparison but it's very hard to be competitive in culture connector about about how you are kind of performing culturally we don't do that and, and you'll see as we um release a few more new 
um, new features this year, the, the next in the coming weeks, that we're, we're trying to take a step back from the, um, the world in which there's an algorithm which, which is driving people towards more and more extreme positions. And Richard, let me just stop you there because I, I, I have a question just related to just that. So, you know, as, as, as you said, you know, driving people to extremisms, we all have observed these cultures are cropping up and people are finding solace in them because uh, these are, uh, as I would like to call them, isolationist cultures, right? Um, they can be video gamers. Uh, they can be, uh, you know, uh, uh, fantasy fiction fanboys and girls and uh, other people. And they can be, you know, uh, complete... Uh, uh, well, I didn't want to use uh, that, but yes, uh, you know, all the controversy enthusiasts <laughs> and they can be, you know, extreme right wing people, extreme left wing people, and they like to be in that culture. So domestically, within the same country, you will find them getting together online. Internationally, you would find them getting together online. And more and more we see this, we we know that, uh, you know, they're also part of the economic uh, workforce. So they they are going to be working well with those people who would kind of stay in the middle as most humans do um then these are the ones who require more and more intercultural intelligence and support and and so as to, as to how would you reach out to them because um telling them what they might be thinking is not quite uh, you know accurate all the time is going to be the biggest challenge of all well, I'll say something a bit controversial here, uh, controversial in, in the field of in, the intercultural world. Um, we can make intercultural um, resources cheaper. Now, that's a, that is reducing the threshold. I, for, for me, um, an innovation... Uh, Innovation is not invention. So, okay, we have invented digital technology and um, we, uh, that's step, step one. Uh, the next part is to get it out to people and to make it accessible, to make it cheap. So at the moment, uh, I mean, cheap is, uh, I'm using that to be a little bit provocative. It, it, it suggests that there's low quality there, but actually I'm thinking that technologies which are truly inclusive are those which people who have a need can afford. Now, um, intercultural training is a bit of a luxury at the moment. It's something which corporations do for their employees and, and not always for all of their employees. Now, it's my vision that we can produce resources, really good quality resources, which can reach those hard-to-reach people who aren't sitting in corporate training rooms and, and aren't getting the attention that, that you know, kind of um, privileged um, global employees uh, have. Now, um, this is this is one way to do it, and, and, and it's a mission that I'm on. We've had them had a really great um, new connection um, to an interculturalist who started a, an intercultural training business in Central Africa um, in recent years. Uh, last year, started working with him and. You know, I can see that, okay, um, these tools which we make here in Europe and in India and other places are, are all fine. But if the price point is something that only major 
global corporations can uh, really afford to spend on their employees, it's going to remain a very exclusive little bubble. So this is a, this is some, somehow controversial, but I think that intercultural um, resources should be available uh, at schools, you know, uh, with a, appropriately. We, we have to be careful not to get kids into the business of labelling and, and dividing. Uh, so at the right level and in the right way but it should be affordable for any school in the world any business to have access to really good quality resources so this is one way another way is um, real identities now those people that you described who you know the conspiracy theorists and um, uh, and the, the, the extremists sometimes um, are hiding behind identities which are not real if you would meet them in real life they might be the most charming people and and not and, and accepting and, and willing to have a conversation with people who when they're online inhabiting some other persona uh, allow the sort of darkness to come out because you know we have to darken the light in in all of us um so we need to uh encourage people to have the to be confident enough to use their real identities online, uh, and that's not that's not uh, the, uh, you know the um, the only solution here because unfortunately some people use their real identities to promote hateful ideas, oh. and uh, uh, there's, there's there's a hard yeah. task winning those over. But I think gradually in in those ways we can do it, but just equipping people to break down those barriers and like you were saying the more that we um disarm people by going into situations without us us and them thinking you find that people who might reject you when you are a stranger to them if you have the skills to start a conversation this is why i'm one of big fan of what you do you're just having conversations with diverse people and conversations is really it's really the pathway to a common understanding even if we agree to disagree at the end of the conversation you know we've had a coming together haven't we so if if the more people who have intercultural skills who are able to talk across differences reach out and connect with people the, the more that we disarm those those negative ideas True, absolutely true, Richard. And and I, I see, I'm I'm a I'm a true believer in in the concept of global citizenship, and and I uh, you know I can't stress it enough that I think borders are unnatural and man-made, and uh, they need to be uh, you know torn down uh, as soon as uh, we can get our political acts together, which might take a lot of time. <laughs> so, but still, I think the movement is is, is happening. Uh, EU, the Nordic countries is, uh, in in particular are a big example of that. Uh, then, you know, you have uh, East Asia with Japan and South Korea and Taiwan building amazing relationships uh, with each other. New Zealand, Australia, another example, the Balkan states. And, uh, you know, then you have India, Nepal, Bhutan having such a strong relationship. So, yes, you have these small little examples. And, and uh, I think it just I just hope it expands more. Uh, encompassing the entire Latin America, encompassing uh, various parts of Africa and, and so on. Um, when we are moving towards this, we definitely need more tools like the like the interconnector, uh, intercultural connector. And I think uh, you're absolutely right. We need to make it uh, available to everyone. I think it should be part of uh, you know curriculum, 
in in schools and colleges across the world um richard uh, i know we've stressed the conversation a, a lot but i there is still one more aspect which is the technology aspect i'm really interested in and i'm and and i i know you you're a big technology fan as well especially living in in one of the most tech centric countries in the world um you uh, based on your own personal experiences obviously you have this amazing amount of uh, knowledge about in uh, cross cultural training in your head and then you put some of it in interculture connector and then you will be putting more of it uh, later on you have a huge data set of knowledge and and data set of uh, you know cultural knowledge or cultural intelligence which are the other organizations in the world which have such knowledge as well about cross cultural intelligence and if they have those data sets are they using it to increase the cultural intelligence across the world if they are not let's say or if they are in whatever way can normal people access it how can we access that data set how can we mine that data out of those big organizations yeah well that's a big question and uh, i think a really important one for um uh, digital um, our digital future. Well, it's not really future, is it? It's, it's arrived already. Yeah, there are a few tools. I said uh, Culture Connector is not one of these that measures competence. So we have data sets on, on cultural orientations. Um, there are a few kind of leading tools. The, um, uh, the For example, the uh, Cultural Intelligence Center uh, has is rather... One of the newer ones on the scene, but is attracting a lot of attention. Most of these are in, in proprietary hands. Uh, the data that they gather are not owned by the people that they represent, as I understand the model. There are one or two institutions that have done that, I think. Was it Glasgow University that had a big project around intercultural competence? But... Um, I think that it's not happening because it's it's so difficult to um, isolate intercultural competence at this stage. And the traditional methods that we get from classical uh, psychometrics, psychoanalytics, is is not up to the task, I would say. What we we invested some time not so long not so long ago in looking at um, learning analytics, the, the way that we're collecting data about learning analytics. Uh, so this is not so much a static view of um, uh, of intercultural competence, but how it's acquired. So related, but not, not quite the same. Um, what we decided is not to go with an open standard that there is in, that there is in the marketplace, because there's a kind of institutional problem that human resources departments have very often been outsourced to large HR suppliers who do that in like a kind of business processing outsource, business process outsourcing model. But uh, many corporations have done that. Uh, if, if, by the way, you ever hear a CEO come in and do a speech uh, whereby they say that uh, people are our most important asset. Have you ever heard that being said? Um, and it's it's generally not true because it's so easy to um, to come up with that. Um, um, but you know the, the truth of it is that these these functions are very often outsourced, and not even the corporations that employ the people have the data 
um, but it's held by organizations that provide the platforms. To my knowledge, they're not doing the work on this. You're right, there's a potential gold mine. I'm not sure that culture would be the first one in employee productivity. Um, the, the, the privacy aspect is fascinating because now we're in a situation where um, we're talking about vaccine passports and sharing your health data. In the country where I come from, there's even the discussion going on that you might need a passport to show your passport to go to the pub, to you know, to show that oh you've been God. vaccinated so you can go to the pub. Now, this is a huge thing in the, in British culture, but okay, we're, we're moving into an into an era when uh, we are being People are increasingly okay about sharing their data, quite sensitive health data. I mean, it's not entirely new. There have been, for a long time, it's been a requirement to have, is it, I think, a yellow fever jab to go to a certain country and so on. So, but we are moving ahead very fast in this. Um, one of the things that has really had a kind of breakthrough in the last few decades is. Um, is the sequencing of the human genome. So now we have a mass of data about the, uh, the source of the, the genetic basis for disease. And this is not a deterministic thing, so it's, it's usually not a simple, like you have this set of genes, here's your polygenic score, therefore you will have disease X. It's more like a probabilistic thing. But the, the thing that's kind of terrifying and exciting at the same time is um, the potential, and it's not just potential, but the reality now that we are discovering a genetic basis for personality traits. Again, this is this is your area. There's, there's a lot of data now that we have the human genome sequence. We have cheap technology. Again, the cheapness of the technology has been really important. Uh, with SNP chip technology, that you can very easily get a... Um, a polygenic score for, for example, your kids. You, you, you can uh, give, a, again, a probabilistic analysis of their educational attainment. Uh, and it costs not, it, it won't break the bank for most people uh, to do that for their children. People spend a lot on education for their kids, a lot on education. And um, having an understanding of the genetic proclivities of children is kind of a terrifying but maybe potentially a liberating idea that we invest in the right kind of development environments for kids with different interests and different needs. Now that's that's the best scenario here. Um, so what I'm coming to is that it may be that, that privacy stops being an issue that people just that ship has sailed that people are, are just willing to give up their data and as i say people are very open to the idea of um, vaccine passports and it, it's only going to accelerate from here so what if an employer who today is saying sorry you can't work here if you're not vaccinated we need your health data before we employ you what if that employer says, okay, we'd like you to take a, a cheap and easy genetic test to see whether you uh, have a tendency to a likelihood or what is your likelihood of uh, anxiety and depression? Or what is your, uh, if we roll forward the time, uh, what is your openness to new situations? 
because we found a, a genetic basis for this openness characteristic. Now that's that's where I would start to worry. So I think we are really in chapter one of this digital um, this digital century we're in now, and what the kind of data that we have at the moment doesn't worry me so much because, like I say, the predictive power of a, a, a cultural competence test is in the very low percentage points. Right. But it may be that as these polygenic tests um, become, or the knowledge around your polygenic scores become, when I say polygenic, I mean it's a series of genes. There's not a single gene for cultural competence, but the more data that comes in, the more likely it is that we'll find that a whole range of genes will um, give uh, a greater likelihood of you succeeding in international environments. So my concern is really about where that data is going to be housed. And I, I think we... There's no, there's no turning back. Parents are already spending this kind of money on finding out how their kids are doing, and there are companies that will supply this service. So I, I, I understand the question, uh, and it's one that you know it's good practice for what's coming down the line. If we can deal with the question of who owns cultural competence data today, well, that's good practice for what happens ten years from now, maybe a generation or two from now when perhaps even countries select their immigrant populations based on a polygenic score. Now, this, this kind of thing is, is mind-blowing and, and kind of terrifying, but I hope that we're building societies and democracies which are strong enough and inclusive enough and based on good values that we can handle this technology. It's, it's really a kind of... Absolutely. Uh, a dynamite in our hands, and I hope that we're able to handle it right. So, yeah, let's let's get cultural competence data in good shape, but keep our eyes open on, on where the megatrends are, are taking us. Absolutely, Richard. I mean, I think uh, you've touched so many uh, deep chords over there, uh, you know, of, of what our society is going through, uh, especially during this, uh, you know, really, really fast transitional period. Uh, especially in the last 20 years, uh, especially because of technology and globalization. Um, I hope organizations like United Nations and I hope like organizations like the Indian Foreign Services, uh, where, you know, diplomats are living in uh, 200 different countries and, and they, you know, understand these uh, different uh, aspects, start sharing more data with, with, uh, with everyone and uh, start sharing more wisdom over there. Um, Richard, thank you so much for being on the show. You have taken out so much time. Uh, you know, time actually kind of flew. Uh, the conversations are so fluid between, uh, you know, us. Uh, we've reached the last section of the uh, podcast uh, where two small questions I would like to ask you to conclude the uh, entire episode. Um, the first question is about uh, what career advice would you like to give uh, young students and professionals who would like to reach a place uh, similar to yours, uh, you know, they want to work as an interculturalist or they want to use technology and combine human wisdom together to create products and services for people at large. Yeah, well, um, 
beware of advice from people like me. Um, I think uh, go, go to someone who can really advise you well, like a Saurabh Nanda. Uh, this is the source of wisdom, and, and perhaps not me. But it, so I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't feel qualified to, to advise people directly. But if I, if I could appear as a ghost to my younger self and uh, and, and give myself some advice, um, then. Uh, Perhaps I would say a few things uh, which I feel have worked worked out pretty well for me. One is um, uh, enjoy the journey. So whatever you're doing, don't obsess about the next milestone. Make sure that what you're doing right now is giving you that satisfaction because you don't know what you know what's around the next corner. So enjoy the journey. I'd say embrace the grind as well, by which I mean don't, don't shy away from the hard parts of developing yourself. That you know, if you if you need to sit down and do that three hours preparation for an exam that you really don't want to do, or maybe it's three years of study in some college or some direction, then I'd say just do it. You have a conversation with your future self and, and see whether you think that you would be happy that you did this work. Uh, so embrace the grind. It's not all fun. And some of it, you know, the satisfaction comes from having completed it. And it's, you know, so those are two contradictory things, which uh, you'll often find when you ask for advice that, um, that you, you hear things which um, are very easy to say, but um, perhaps fly in the face of what you've, uh, you've heard from another source. So you need to integrate advice um, to, um, to, to decide for yourself what's the right path for you. And, and, and then um, perhaps the, the last thing is um, don't specialize yet. So I, I would say this to myself, if you see, if you think that you know what you want, that's great, but try some other things too, even if you're enjoying what you're doing. Switching, you can always switch back, but, uh, and you may, you'll never fall, you'll never fall behind for long. You know, it's hard to switch and restart, but you will, as you move forward, having switched, you'll find that you get, you get more, you come forward faster every time, uh, so don't specialise yet. And I think I would say those things to my younger self. But then I'd say, here's, here's Saurabh's phone number. Speak to a professional. <laughs> well, that was quite insightful, Richard. Thank you so much for that. Last question uh, before we conclude. Uh, one liner, one sentence uh, for the world, which makes the world a better place. Oh, okay. Well. Um, I'm a huge podcast fan, um, and so th th I think the best one has been taken already. I, I don't know if you've ever heard that the so-called flagship podcast for the BBC, the British Broadcasting Company, um, they have a podcast for female pipe smokers and cinema goers, which sounds weird, but it attracts a huge number of listeners. And um, uh, it goes something like this. Um, how is it? Uh, 
Yeah, so when you're facing some kind of challenge in your life, some dark period, uh, you need to tell yourself that it, it will all be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not the end. And this sounds kind of banal, but it's, um, it's, it's, there's a lot of depth to that. And it's not, it's not a, a um, famous philosopher who came up with that, but because this, the show is about, um, about cinema, I think it's um, a, a cinema director that you may or may not have heard of, but uh, it's, um, it, it's, there's some wisdom there. But actually, no, um, I had something else in mind, because you, you warned me that you might be asking this question. So I think the thing that we need in order to make the world a better place is when you're confronted with something that you instinctively react against that you feel offended or oppressed by um, is to start with the most generous possible interpretation of where that's coming from so what might it be that has what is the, the, the best possible way i can think that this has happened to me What's the best possible spin? Because you'll probably be, be right. It's surprising how much of human behavior is driven by the best intentions, even those things which seem to, to you to be um, a challenge to the, the, the person that you are, the way that you think. If you start from that, it's, it's a much healthier way to kind of approach the world. Uh, I think there's a risk of naivety slightly there but i think if you do it with your eyes open and you just look for the good in people you'll find it perfect and i think i couldn't agree more that's that's been uh, one of the mantras that i live by in my life there's i always try to see the good in people and you know life just becomes so much more simpler then <laughs> well thank you so much richard for gracing us uh, on such conversations matter thank you so much my pleasure Thank you for listening to this episode of Such Conversations Matter. Please share this episode with your friends who you think will benefit from this conversation too. Please like this episode, subscribe to and follow our channel on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram and all major podcast platforms. We would love to hear your comments and feedback. If you think such conversations are important and should continue, then please consider donating. You could treat me to a coffee or an expensive dessert. Take care and keep thinking of the future we should have.